Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, Australia's highest court found that newspapers and television stations that post articles on Facebook's platform are liable for other Facebook users' comments on those posts. Uh, The High Court dismissed an appeal against this by some of Australia's biggest media outlets, and the ruling is part of Dylan Voller's defamation case, which is continuing. He's suing over comments made about him on a news article about his detention in the Northern Territory. And the ruling on third-party comments could... Um, prompt a rethink on some publishers and how they engage with social media. But what are the repercussions for the rest of us too? Um, are we entering another brave new world? Uh, and, you know, what as lay people like us do we need to kind of know about this? Uh, we've asked Jeff Sparrow to have a look at it. He's a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Melbourne, among many other things. And it's great to have you with us, Jeff. Good morning. Great to be with you guys as always. How are you both doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, going good. All things considered, my uh, normal caveat. Um. <laughs> we're, we're out of the house, Jeff, so things, things are good. <laughs> oh, lucky, lucky you. Yes. <laughs> um, but look, none of us are defamation lawyers. Let's put it out there like that. But these kinds of things that happen in the court do have flow-on effects for anyone that, that publishes and, and, and any of us that are using social media platforms and the like. It's, it seems like a significant ruling. I mean, how significant is it in, in your assessment, Jeff? Yes, so let's, let, let's, let's tease out um, the facts of the case first um, before we start talking about what it means, because it is actually a really fascinating um, episode. So as you said in your intro, this is to do with Dylan Boller, who's the, who was the young man that people will remember from those horrific photos from the Dondale Detention Centre, in which he was uh, restrained in a, uh, a spit mask. And... He's now brought a legal action in New South Wales for defamation after a series of newspapers published accounts of him on their Facebook um, on their Facebook pages. And his defamation action isn't about the articles themselves, but about comments that appeared under those Facebook pieces. So, you know, I'm sure we can imagine the kind of comments that appeared, and he's um, suing for defamation about those comments. Now, it's been through um, two state uh, uh, courts and it's now gone to the High Court, which has said that, in fact, um, he is able to sue the publications for defamation, not for their articles, but for the comments that have appeared on their Facebook pages. I should should say this doesn't mean necessarily that he will win the case. The court hasn't yet determined whether comments were defamatory. It's just said that he can proceed with them. And it is really interesting. So should the media be responsible not for anything that it's written, but for the comments that other people have put underneath its Facebook pages. And I don't know, what do you guys think about that? Do you think it should be held responsible? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a tough one because obviously these things are you know are tested in in court for good reason. So it's sort of hard to make generalisations about you know the extent to which um, you know news organisations should always or, or always not be held liable for those comments because there are some uh, you know articles that are deliberately incendiary, and I'm not talking about the specific case um, I should say involving Dylan Voller at the moment, but we know the kind of tabloid sensationalist news style, and you can imagine some of the kind of comments and, and toxic commentary that can can spread forth from that. But also, it's difficult to hold news organisations liable for any comment posted below an article because social media is a wild west as well. And we know some of the really, you know, disgusting commentary on a daily basis that gets spread on, on the likes of Twitter, for example. So I think it's a it's a really interesting one. But, um, but I suppose my mind goes to what the implications are going forward, not just for news organisations, but for anyone who has, you know, a public social media profile or administers a page for, you know, even a community group or a community organisation, for example. Yes, and that's been a focus for much of the discussion. The implication does seem to be that if you post something to a social media platform and encourage or invite third-party comments, you can be responsible for the comments that follow, irrespective of whether you have authorised them or even seen them yourself. Um, So that could have quite sweeping implications, although it should also be noted that there are new defamation laws coming to place in um, many of the states, which do seem to sort of change the, the proceeding that the courts will follow, that it will encourage encourages, um, defendants to wait at least a fortnight before suing, which would then give you a chance to pull those uh, comments down. But I think there is a broader issue that... Um, needs to be discussed in this context, which does seem to be that essentially defamation law is increasingly broken, that it's not fit for purpose in the um, new media environment that, that we face. And, you know, Australia has very, very strict defamation laws, and they often function not necessarily to protect ordinary people from, um, you know, from... Uh, the, the powerful who have access to the media but can often have the opposite effect in which uh, it becomes far harder, say, for journalists to investigate a um, an important public interest story for fear that if they do so, they'll be pursued for defamation. So, for instance, one of the reasons why Me Too, the Me Too movement, didn't have the same kind of profile in Australia as it did elsewhere is that many of the many of the stories that were broken in the United States, for instance, could never have been published in Australia because of defamation. Yeah, and no, I mean the, the sorts of things that when when I read about the the ruling last week, the things that ran through my mind is that well, media companies, you know, have, have said that this is a challenge not only with with staffing, but you know, staying on top of comments, and we're likely to see more of the comments turned off, um, particularly on on sort of high profile stories, I guess, where and and that technology function is now there, you can restrict or, or turn off comments, but if it is sweeping in that it affects. Um, you know, social media in general and posts that people put up who aren't knowledgeable about defamation law that aren't published and haven't done journalism degrees and the like, um, what's about in that space? And I guess that's where my mind went straight away. I mean, people 
need to be somehow literate on these laws now, um, whether you're a, a kind of an official media publisher or, or a different kind of a publisher? Yes, and it's worth noting, of course, that the implication of this case is that the, the commenters themselves could have been sued for defamation, um, but in these instances, it's far more common for uh, people to go after the media companies because the commenters, the commenters don't necessarily have the sort of money that a media organisation has. Now, the argument that was made here is that the media organisations were profiting from their Facebook profiles and therefore they should be responsible um, for everything that, that, that happens on those uh, Facebook pages. But as you say, how that applies in, say, just a community group's page or an individual page. In theory, the, the, the case seems to imply that you or I or anyone else will be held equally liable for a discussion that ensued underneath our Facebook comments, underneath our, our Facebook or other social media um, posts. Now, I suppose you could say that we'd be less likely to be sued simply because there wouldn't be the money to be generated from because we don't, you know, that we, we don't have any... But you can imagine. That's that true. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but you can imagine the, the, the chilling repercussions for, like, a, you know, I don't know, a community page where there is a trenchant discussion about some local issue where, you know, insults start flying. And this is what I mean about whether or not the laws are actually fit for purpose now, because social media platforms have in the past simply presented themselves not as publishers, but as a neutral form of technology, you know, as a service provider rather than a, a publication. But it's increasingly clear that these sorts of platforms are now really the place, well, they, they operate as a sort of de facto public sphere, in a sense. They, they are the places where these discussions happen, increasingly more so than in, you know, traditional newspapers. Yeah, but does does do the old fashioned law legal system? Does the old fashioned legal system actually provide an, an adequate mechanism for you know adjudicating these disputes? Absolutely, and it's going to be interesting to see how the sort of um, you know any new defamation laws we have seek to seek to kind of strike a, a better balance, I suppose. Because you're right; I mean, we do have really um, sort of strong defamation laws in this country that have you know have been used by um, by the powerful, and we should say you know everyone has a right to to pursue defamation um, action in the courts. But it has been used as a means of kind of silencing proper public interest journalism and having that chilling effect when journalists don't really feel like they necessarily have the means to defend a defamation action when um, when put up against someone with, with a lot of power and, and a whole lot of money as well. But do you imagine that there's any any chance or danger from this that, uh, I mean, we know that a lot of people on social media, particularly trolls and the like, use anonymous accounts, that there might be some people held responsible for comments posted by, you know, just a really horrible troll um, on a page that where someone does doesn't necessarily have the resources to properly monitor all the comments that are going on, that that could then be used almost in a way as defamation has in other in other cases used by the powerful to kind of, you know, silence any, any people or organisations who might be critical of them. Yeah, it seems extraordinarily fraught. I mean, one of the things that's happening across the Australian media is that the continuing crisis of the, the, the traditional business model means that we are seeing news deserts emerge all over the place with like local newspapers in particular closing down and those 
the, the role that those publications had previously played is being filled by things like people's local Facebook groups. You know, that's where most suburbs, know, you know, that don't have a local paper anymore, that's where you hear discussions about, say, council politics or, you know, what's happening in a local community or whatever. Well, those old publications were governed by a defamation law that had evolved alongside the infrastructure of newspapers. But in this new environment, well, it's really hard to see how these uh, laws will, how these sort of, how this ruling will kind of play out, you know, when these things are being discussed in someone's Facebook page as opposed to, you know, in the um, opinion section of an old, of, of a um, local newspaper. It's... Um, it's a strange new world in which we're entering, and one suspects that actually what we need to do is to have a wholesale discussion about the kinds of regulations we want um, about free speech, about speech and its implications, rather than just trying to adapt the existing defamation laws to a purpose that they aren't particularly fit to serve. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, say, letters or comments to a yeah traditional publication go through a filtering process before they're actually published. And so the idea that every single comment could go through such a thing, um, yeah, very interesting times indeed. And, I mean, just finally, Jeff, do you think that the, the review or the changes mooted for um, defamation law is likely to, to touch on this or we're, we're going to be iterating into the future as well? Yeah, see, we, we seem to be in a particular um, time now where it's almost beyond um, the scope of any government to take any sort of meaningful change of any kind whatsoever. <laughs> it's very difficult to imagine a government in Australia having the political courage to sit down and try to fundamentally reshape something like defamation. Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what tends to happen now is that these problems just continue and fester because no one actually has the political authority or the political will to try and tackle these wholesale problems. So I suspect we're just going to blunder on. Yeah, and media, media, else. Yeah, well, media <laughs> regulations, a whole, whole other kettle of fish as well, isn't it? So, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of changes that could happen in that space as well that we've been aware of for a long time, but haven't quite managed to really do anything about it. Yeah, luckily, luckily we're good at blundering here on the uh, grapevine on Triple R. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure as always, Jeff. Um, Blunder on, Kalia. Blunder yeah, on. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> oh, and you'd like to know too that, um, you know, Radiothon went really well and uh, everything's going great and people can still subscribe right up to the 6th of October, but thanks for your uh, contribution to that too, Jeff. Yes. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Um, Jeff Sparrow, of course, a long-time voice here on Triple R, and he's Senior Lecturer in Journalism over at the University of Melbourne these days, among many other things. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We know that the higher education sector has been hit particularly hard by the pandemic, with international students barred from entering the country and universities excluded from the federal government's JobKeeper program. And while many sectors of the economy have reason to be hopeful that things will improve in 2022, a new report from the Mitchell Institute suggests universities face a very tough road ahead. Dr Peter Hurley is one of the authors of a new report. Uh, it's called entitled, It's called sorry, Australian Investment in higher education and he joins us on the line to talk all about it. Peter, great to have you back on the show. 
Oh, thank you. Good morning. And so let's start with some good news. Your report suggests things weren't quite as bad for universities in 2020 as some predicted. Give us a, a broad sketch of how the sector has so far been impacted. Well, I mean, this report is one of the series that we do is we look at, say, the investment in different parts of our education sector and, you know, kind of trace what's happening over the past decade. So, you know, early childhood schools and higher education. And with the higher education story, um, this is actually probably the first time in at least a decade, probably 20 years, that the uh, revenue that universities have collected has fallen. So universities about, you know, they, they collect about $36 billion every year in revenue, and, and that fell by about $2 billion last year. Two and a half billion dollars. So, it's a it's been a difficult time for universities. And what we're suggesting is, when you look at the kind of the policy changes, the kind of environment with international education and international students, um, the lack of further support for the sector, um, it's not looking not looking very good in the next couple of years. And I mean, specifically, what is driving revenue down for higher education? I guess a lot of us can can make some guesses, uh, but yeah, tell us what you found. Well, I think that, look, there, there were two two things that happened last year. There, there's this thing called investment income, which is um, the money that universities receive from you know, their, their investments, dividends, interest, and so on. And that actually fell by about a billion dollars last year. But I think the biggest problem is the international education market. So, I mean, Australia's been using international students to supplement the income that universities receive for, for about 30 years. Um, and in about 2019, that would the universities collected about $10 billion of revenue. Um, there's another $30 billion of revenue attributable to international students that, that go elsewhere in the economy, but universities collect about $10 billion. So that's $10 billion, 10 billion out there, $36, $38 billion. So it's quite substantial. Um, and it fell by about $800 million last year. Um, now, all the indications are is it's just going to keep on falling because there's, there's no new students kind of coming into the coming into study, uh, coming into the country, um, students finish and they're not being replaced. So that's looking like a very big downward trend. So we're, we estimate, based on what's kind of happening, um, every six months of closed borders, it's about $1 to $1.2 billion worth of lost revenue to universities. Has there been, through, through this experience, a, a kind of fundamental severing of, of that international student market? Because I think it's, it's clear to see how students haven't been able to enter the country for the past sort of 18 months or so and it makes sense that given degrees go for a few years that the effects of that might not be felt for some time. But but is there a concern that international students might not in fact return in the numbers they once did once we are properly opened up? I think that there is that concern and it's, and it's a really big question because I think there's a couple of things with the international education market. The first all is at what rate can they return? So, for instance, if we said that, okay, international students can, can come back into the country along with other um, non-citizens, um, the rate with which they can actually cross that border is going to be really important. I mean, for instance, there are about 150,000 international student visa holders, I mean, quite a lot, 150,000, who are actually outside of the country at this point. Um, now, to even just process them using what was kind of uh, what the New South Wales government was saying around, say, 250 to 500 a fortnight, I can't quite remember the number, but or it would have taken four years just to get through that 150,000. So, there's, so the, the rate with which international students can cross the border is, is really important to, the, to, the, um, to that kind of dynamic or understanding what's going to happen. The other part of the equation is how quickly will it rebound? And looking at I mean, we're hopefully going to publish a report soon about this, but looking at what's happened elsewhere, you know, looking at the UK and Canada and America, is that when the borders open, they do kind of rebound pretty quickly, international student numbers, that they've gone back to what what they were. But I think, importantly, they haven't picked up 
the lost revenue, that makes sense. So those intakes that you're losing, they're not picking up, they're not kind of accumulating, they're not kind of accumulating and then kind of coming in when the borders open. And I think that's going to be a problem for Australian universities because, I mean, that lost intake stays in the system for, say, I don't know, you know, two to four years because that's how long it takes for an international student to study. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, if my memory serves me well, last time we spoke to you on Triple R, Peter, um, we were talking about um, the, the the federal government. I think it was was um, you know safety here. You know, people when they they come and study in Australia, we had low COVID at that time, and people could study. You know. In, in relative health safety, but the coming and going was was what was most important to young people, of which international students mostly are, that they can travel back and forth, uh, you know, with relative ease. But we have the quarantine, obviously, for a couple of weeks when people do travel back and forth when they can get that permission. Is that... Um, playing out in other parts of the world too, that when international students can travel back and forth, go back to their home country and then travel in to study, um, they're more likely to choose those locations? I think that, I mean, international education is really tied to that migration experience. I mean, even if it's a very short-term kind of migration, a temporary migration only for, say, two years to four years, and and being able to cross a border is really, really important to that. It's interesting looking at what's happened in other countries, say, for instance, like Canada and the UK. And, I mean, I was surprised at this. (laughs) Um, Someone who's kind of looked, you know, from afar at these kind of border restrictions, they have had border restrictions, and they have had like rules around saying you had to do, say, three days of quarantine or something or other. And, you know, that there were all these kinds of, say, requirements. Um, they, not, none as strict as, as what we have <laughs> um, uh, in the sense that you could actually enter the country. Um, and, you know, international students did make that make that kind of journey through a border and through those requirements. Um, so I think that's, I suppose, good news for the, for the um, you know, for the international education sector. But, I mean, it all, all kind of comes down to this issue of what are these requirements going to be? You know, are, is it going to be hotel quarantine? Are there going to be caps? You know, all those kind of questions are, are unanswered. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the many questions that aren't quite answered at this point. And I mean, we know as well, and your report makes this clear, that the effects of the pandemic have been felt unevenly by different universities. The likes of Monash, um, Melbourne Uni and and Sydney Uni delivered operating surpluses in 2020, whereas the likes of RMIT, La Trobe and Swinburne recorded deficits in the tens of millions. Forecasting ahead, do you imagine those trends will continue or, or how do you see particular institutions respond to the, the challenges of the coming years? I think, I think what's important to remember about the higher education system is uh, it is a bit like schools in the sense that the institutions, um, they have different needs. Um, and you can see that with you know, the University of Melbourne and, and Monash and, and University of Sydney, who basically <laughs> accounted for you know, most of the operating surpluses across the sector last year. It's, it's really unclear... I think what, how individual institutions are going to be able to deal with this. Um, and, uh, I mean, they've all put in their own kind of strategies. Um, and, uh, I mean, I would expect that some will, will, will have, have better resources. I mean, the, the, the group of eight universities, they're bigger. They've got, they've got more ability to kind of, you know, look, get you know, research income and so on. They've got, they've got, they've got bigger savings <laughs> um, compared to some of those smaller universities. So I think over the next year or two, it's going to be really, what's going to become very apparent about how 
different universities are faring in this environment. And I mean, how likely do you think it is, Peter, that we'll see a sort of a a shake-up of the university sector? I mean, so many of these, the the institutions that um, that we just heard have lost money, play a really important role in the university sector. But could we start seeing things like mergers and or or institutions closing campuses and things like that? or, or, Or should we not get too far ahead of ourselves? I think when it comes to those types of issues, um, I mean, universities are very, very different types of kind of entities. I mean, they're often kind of, you know, acts of state parliament. So it's, it's you, know, you know, sure, there might be, that, that might happen. <laughs> um, I'm not, not sure that it's likely. I think what, what generally happens is you kind of get more of a hollowing out. Um, so, you know, you have people, you know, staff go, um, they have fewer courses, you know, there are fewer kind of, you know, um, know, students at certain campuses and so on. And, and so you get this kind of hollowing out of an institution. I think, I think that the, the, Pace sector is an example of that when that has happened. Also, I do think it's very interesting in terms of, I mean, when we look at this kind of this issue of say, you know, investment and, and finances and so on. I mean, we like to look at it at the Mitchell Institute because it's a way of seeing what's happening with these kind of policy trends and, and what is it that we're viewing and what we want our kind of education sector to do. And it's, I think, what's kind of happened with the university sector is that increasingly there's been this kind of, you know, direction. You know, go out and get commercial fee-for-service revenue. Um, and then, you know, in doing that, it's made the university more kind of exposed to these shocks. You know, no one saw this pandemic coming, um, and uh, and I think it's really hurt the university quite a lot. I think there's also some other really big, interesting issues around, say, you know, what's the value of these university experiences? And you can see things like the Job Ready Graduates Program, which is the federal government's new, you know, uh, policy towards funding domestic students um, and that trying to link the value of the education experience as much to what it's kind of, its economic value, how much someone earns afterwards or their employment you know, outcomes and so on. And I think what this is kind of showing is that it's, you know, Maybe we need to look at this again around what's happening with universities, what we want them to be, how we want them to function and how we want them to serve different parts of our population. Absolutely. Uh, Peter Hurley is our guest. He's uh, with the Mitchell Institute and we're talking all about a recent report they released um, into Australia's universities and and forecasting ahead, suggesting there will be um, pain felt by the sector for some time. And and on that, I mean, we do speak a lot about the university sector in sort of an economic sense and and your sort of allusion to the job-ready graduate program is, you know, tied to the kind of industries that the government wants to encourage people to go into into the future. But what about the university experience and, and what universities might be like into the future? Because at the moment, there's, you know tens of thousands of, of students paying for the same price for education, which they're effectively getting online. They're not getting all of those really um, important experiences of joining clubs and, and meeting people and, um, and you know, going to see um, music on the campus, all that sort of fun stuff that you get out of university as well. Do you think that the actual product will change into the future, given that I suppose universities might see a, a value in not having to have such large and, and well-resourced campuses? Well, yeah. What's happened to the uni bars? Um, yes, I think that I think that the I think when it comes to say the, the business of education and running education, there, there are there can be some benefits from the university perspective in having things online. You get that kind of economies of scale. You know, like it's it's much more difficult to say resource a, a small tutorial um, across a, you know a class of you know a course of a thousand. You can put them all in, put them all on bulletin boards, whatever they're called, on, in the learner <laughs> management system. But I, 
um, I think there is a, I think absolutely there's a place for that that type of learning. Um, how learning occurs often happens with you know um, can happen online. That, that's great. I think there's still a, a big place for you know in person learning. I mean, I work in kind of education policy and you know looking at how say different parts of our education sector kind of um, you know interact with other parts of parts of society. So you can think about the labour market, think about the vocational education sector. I think what the university's got going for it is that there's in terms of, say, the youth kind of transition from school to work, I mean, the, the outcomes that young people get, it, it's still much better if you go to university on the whole. And there's not much competition elsewhere. <laughs> uh, we haven't done the work in kind of, you know, investing in our vocational education and training sector. So there'll still, I think, be a lot of demand for, for what universities offer. The other thing I think about universities is, I mean, they're really large places, and they also do a lot of research. And if you think about, I mean, we're doing a lot of work at the moment. We do have a health kind of area as part of our think tank. And a lot of that, I mean, a lot of the kind of ways of approaching these problems with the pandemic, all these R numbers and so on, I mean, they're, they're things that were kind of founded in universities and spoken about in universities and all these kind of ways of approaching things. Um, and I, I hope that we're able to kind of remember the value of that and kind of keep investment in these type of things because they're, they're extremely useful. And and I wonder, I mean, the the kind of report that you've pulled together, Peter, and I know other people are looking at this as well, we have a chance to now see that next year and the year after, if we continue on the current trajectory, are going to be very painful for these institutions, which you've, you know, just explained really serve society and are pathways for a lot of young people into the workforce and, and so forth. Is there a likelihood that the federal government, for instance, might step in and do something differently or are you universities trying anything new here to try and prevent the pain over the next couple of years or is it really just a fait accompli? I think it's a fait accompli. I think it's I think the the size of the problem and that it just has to be I think remembered. I, I read something today about how um, the job ready graduates program and how actually they would need say a billion dollars over the next um, decade. Uh, to actually meet the meet the claims that the um, government was making around, say, their you know extra student places. I mean, the international student market, uh, because of what's happening, it's a billion dollars every six months. <laughs> you know, it's such a it's such a um, it, it's such a big problem. And I think also, look, in terms of the government support, no one. I don't think that many people were thinking about that this this issue with international students would last beyond the end of this year. Um, and and certainly the government provided a billion dollars of extra research support. Um, uh, as part of the part of the kind of package, um, uh, but that that research support, that extra billion dollars, finishes at the end of this year, and there's no extra support going beyond that. So, I mean, it, maybe there's. I mean, who knows what the government will do or what universities will do or, or so on. But I think there might be a big case for some more targeted support. Absolutely. Well, um, well, thanks so much for, for joining us today, Peter. And we should acknowledge as well that Mitchell Institute is, of course, aligned with Victoria University. So um, you coming on is very much testament to the importance of, of those institutions for, for helping us look ahead at, at some of the challenges we're going to face for some time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Peter Hurley there, he's um, with the Mitchell Institute talking about a new report they've got out uh, which is looking into Australia's university sector for the years ahead. It's called Australian Investment in Higher Education. You can find that on their website. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
Oh, anyone under 21 who lives in Australia has been invited to submit a speech to be read in federal parliament in mid-October. It's part of the Raise Our Voice in Parliament campaign aimed at engaging young people in the political process. And the idea is that federal MPs from across the country will read speeches from young people in their electorates. So far, 40 MPs have committed to doing this. And Ashley Strick-Jones is here to tell us more. She's founder and facilitator of Raise Our Voice Australia Um, which is a social enterprise working to support the next generation of diverse public service leaders, politicians and public policy makers. And thanks, Ashley. It's uh, great to have you on Triple R. No, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a really interesting initiative to get people, uh, well, young people uh, actively engaging in the political process. I wonder with all the health restrictions, you know, we're seeing our leaders making decisions that affect our lives and freedoms in very visible ways at the moment. Are you finding this is motivating those under 21 to submit speeches? You know what? I really thought it would, but we are collecting some data from the young people who submit the speeches as well. So we want to learn a little bit more about how confident they are in their understanding of Australian politics, how influential they feel their voices are. And one of the categories that we're um, collecting data around or questions we're asking is, what is the issue that matters most to you? And I have to say, overwhelmingly, it's climate change. Interesting. And uh, I mean, there's a whole range of ways of of engaging in politics. And we know that, you know, membership of the the major political parties has been dwindling for some time and and trust in politics um, has been dwindling as well. What's to be gained from uh, this initiative, from engaging people in the political process by having their speeches read by sitting MPs? Well, already 50% of the people who submitted speeches have said that this is their first time connecting with a politician. And this is excellent. We really want um, young people, and we know that young people are passionate. They are they have access to information like never before. So their ability to learn about issues is, is really unprecedented. So young people overwhelmingly engage with issues. And what we would love to see is the next generation of young people saying, hey, I really care about this issue. There are lots of tools in my toolbox that I can think about using to solve this problem. And actually, I would like politics to be one of them. And I mean, this initiative of this um, campaign that you're running is aimed at Youth Voice in Parliament Week, which is running from October 18 to 21. And, you know, people can submit their speeches in this next week to be, um, you know, get the chance of having it read out by an MP. I wonder, you know, is it common that MPs read speeches from their constituents, young or old? Is this a common practice that uh, politicians will do this? Yes, it is. So politicians... um Something that we learned through doing this campaign, and this is what you get when you roll things out in real time, is that um, everybody apart from ministers and assistant ministers get 90-second speaking slots. So they can use these 90-second speaking slots as they see fit. And it's quite common for MPs to use these speaking slots to actually highlight the story of somebody from their electorate or highlight the more local work that's taking place. So, yes, this does happen, but what we're looking to do is really mobilise a week where all of the, where at least each politician who participates reads a 90-second speech specifically from a young person in their electorate. And so how have you gone about selecting the speeches that would be read, Ashley? An excellent 
excellent question. So we are just going to do a little bit of quality control. Um, as you can imagine, we've had at least one submission that is entirely expletive. So we're going to do just a bit of quality control and then we're going to pass them forward to the office of the participating politician and it's the politician who will get to have the final say. And so um, you're giving the so a, a young person from a particular electorate, you're giving it to their MP. What if my MP hasn't agreed to participate yet? What happens with my um, speech, Ashley? Look, a really good question. We still encourage young people whose MPs aren't participating to submit their speech. I'm not making any promises, but it looks likely that there may be a few other opportunities for those speeches to be read out. And uh, I mean, given that the MP, you know, ultimately has the final say over over reading reading this speech out, um, how do you imagine it will go if if some of the speeches that are submitted are, you know, very critical or are advocating some some policies that sort of run against what um, the MP's party um, uh, what their policy is? Look, this is a really good question. At the end of the day, politicians are there to represent their electorate, but we also understand that politicians do belong to political parties. So we are letting them have the final say on which speech they select. We throw that over to them. We trust they'll make the decision in good faith, of course. But something I will add is that for the young people whose speeches aren't chosen, we don't want this to be the end of their journey. We're convening a workshop series in October, so partnering with lots of other organisations who work in politics, advocacy, youth engagement, and everybody who submits a speech will be invited to participate in all of these workshops as well. So we want to continue working with this next generation of leaders to make sure that we're supporting them as they continue their leadership journeys. And yeah, just um, still on the MPs, uh, Ashley, with regards to those, like say you get a whole lot of speeches, brilliant speeches from young people in an electorate and the MP, the federal MP, isn't participating, is there still a chance for that MP to come on board if you sort of say, oh, hey, look, we've got just so many people wanting you to read their speech out, how about you reconsider? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we did issue invitations to all of the sitting federal MPs. Again, I will give the caveat that ministers and assistant ministers don't get the 90-second speaking slots. So as much as we would have loved to have included them, uh, we weren't able to this time around. That's something for us to think about and give more consideration to next year. But really do encourage young people who are passionate, email your MP, reach out and say, hey, my name is X, I'm X years old, and I would love for my speech to be read out by you in our federal parliament. We're speaking with Ashley Streeter-Jones, the founder and facilitator of Raise Our Voice Australia, and um, they're running a campaign for young people in Australia, those aged um, 21 or under, to have their speech, a 90-second speech, read out by MPs in federal parliament in October. And I'm interested in, uh, I suppose, how this might be used as a channel or kind of a, a conduit for engaging young people in the political system, particularly taking into account the, you know, criticism around um, uh, diversity in federal parliament, not just in terms of things like cultural background and, and gender, but also the professions that many politicians tend to come from. Do you imagine that this process uh, could hopefully lead to, uh, I suppose, more diverse people from Australia, more diverse young people feeling like they do have a place in engaging with politics at that sort of official level? I really, really hope so. And as I said, we've got so many, like the next generation of young people is incredibly engaged. They're very engaged with issues. And I think there's a bit of a drop off when they look at our parliament, not just federally, but at a state level and at a local level as well, and don't see themselves represented. A 
as I said, there are lots of ways to take action on issues. And I think a lot of young people are looking at politics and going, hey, this isn't necessarily the pathway for me. The thing is, our political system's not going anywhere. So we do need young people in particular to continue to opt in, not just to engaging with politics more generally, but actually in running for office as well. So I know that um, each political party does have its own uh, pipeline and, and way of getting people in. We'd love to see a much greater, much more diverse representation of people who really just represent Australia and all of its diversity stepping into these political spaces. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, we've spoken quite a bit this year to to those um, really rallying to get, you know, voice from community and the sort of voices of movement. And there's others as well where we're seeing this idea that communities can um, not not just be part of political campaigns, but actually just raise issues that are important to them, which is quite interesting. This seems to be part of it. But, I mean, you're asking participants to address the question, what is your vision for Australia in 20 years? And you mentioned right from the outset, Ashley, that climate change is a theme coming through. Are you getting a lot of uh, vision for what Australia could be in 20 years uh, around that climate change issue, or is it broader than that? Look, it is broader than that. We are getting a lot of um, a lot of submissions around climate change, but we've even got a submission from a young ten year old who feels really passionately about playing more Minecraft in class. So again, it shows that young people themselves are such a diverse group. And yes, climate change is a real issue that people are rallying around, but we are seeing real diversity of issues. And so, how can people get involved, Ashley? So head to our website, it's www.raiseourvoiceaustralia.com slash youthvoice. We have some speech templates to help get you started. Um, so you can download one of the templates, then head to the type form embedded on the website. You'll be able to look for your MP or select other if your MP isn't listed, then paste in your a 90-second speech, which is about 200 words. And as I said, everybody who submits a speech, even if your speech isn't chosen to be read, will be invited to participate in the workshop series in October. Sounds really exciting. Good luck with it. And I can imagine all these backbenchers, I don't know, I've seen enough Parliament to know that sometimes there's not that many people in the room when they read these speeches out, but it will be in Hansard forever. And so, yeah, good luck to those sending the speech in. I hope it gets read out. Thanks, Hitch. Thanks so much. Ashley Streeter-Jones there, who's founder and facilitator of Raise Our Voice Australia, and that's called Raise Our Voice in Parliament Campaign. If you Google it, you'll be able to find it. And yeah, anyone under the age of 21 can submit a speech. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.